All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Everybody hear me okay, Rob? Good? Okay. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16. As we continue through the Sermon on the Mount this morning, Verse 13 to 16, Jesus says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we approach you this morning knowing that as we read these verses that we are salt and we are light, that to be these things that you call us to be, we need the help of your spirit. Lord, that it is you that builds these characteristics in us. It is not by our own power that we are able to be these things in the world. And so we ask for your help this morning. Lord, we ask that as we go through your word this morning and look at what it means, that your spirit would speak to each of us. Lord, we ask that you would deepen our desire for Jesus, that you would deepen our desire to live for you, and that we would long to be salt and light in the world. Grow us into the image of your Son, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've, as you can tell from what I just read, we've come to the end of the Beatitudes that we'd been looking at together for about the past eight weeks. We've been going through the Beatitudes together. But this morning, just because we're done the Beatitudes, we're still looking at Jesus's teaching on Christian character. This is still what a Christian is supposed to be. And Jesus in these verses that we just read is telling us what we are. He's telling us that through the gift of salvation, this is what we have become. This is what we are to be in the world. You are salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And so if you are a Christian, you are these things in relation to the world. And we'll look at what Jesus means by salt and light. But before we do that, I want to reflect on the fact that Jesus also includes a warning in these verses. We can't skip past the significant warnings that Jesus puts in these verses as well. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, we should approach these warnings soberly and seriously. He says, he says, if saltiness has lost its taste, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then in verse 14 and 16, when Jesus is talking about being the light of the world, he's clearly warning that you can hide your light from before others. We can actually hide our lights from shining. And so Jesus is telling us, as a Christian, you can lose your saltiness and you can hide your light. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, as he reflects on these verses, he concludes the following. He says, There is nothing in God's universe that is so utterly useless as a merely formal Christian, or as we would say it, a nominal Christian. By that I mean someone who has the name of Christian, but not the quality of Christian. And so what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying here in these verses, he's saying there's, there's nothing so useless as someone who would claim the name of Christ, but is completely void of all of the things that we've been looking at over the last eight, eight weeks, that the person would not be poor in spirit, to mourn over your sin, to walk meekly before God and man, to, be, to desire righteousness and trust God for that righteousness and having received that righteousness, walking in purity, walking in mercy, walking as peacekeepers, making peace before God and others as well as before men and persevering in righteousness. These are characteristics that come only through the Spirit of God. And these are the characteristics that give us as followers of Christ our salty flavor. These are what give us the flame in our lives so that we may be salt and we may be light in the world. And so to claim Christ, but to reflect the world and to be void of such characteristics is, as Weber puts it, useless to the king's advancement of his kingdom on earth. And so we do not want to be found to be useless to our king. Matthew 25 contains the parable of the talents, and this parable teaches what happens with those who are useless to the master. In the story, the, the, the foolish servant was given one talent from his master to steward well. And what does the, what does the, the foolish servant do? He goes and he hides his talent. He doesn't steward it well. And when the master returns, he's furious because the, the servant wasted what the master had given him. And the master takes the talent from the servant who wasted it and he gives it to the servant who already had 10 talents because he took care of them and he invested them and he did what he should with them. And Jesus finishes that parable with a really sobering declaration in Matthew 25, verse 29 to 30. He says, for to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Jesus takes this idea very seriously, that we are to be salt and light, that we are to be useful in the kingdom of God. And we want to be what we have been saved to be, or at least I'm assuming every single one of us here wants to be that, or else we probably wouldn't be here this morning. And if there's no desire that's found in us to be what Christ has called us to be, then we have to question our assumption that we are in Jesus. There needs to be this desire in a Christian's heart to be what Christ has called us to. We are to be salt of the earth. We are to be light of the world. And so let's look at what these two things mean. The Roman author who's known as Pliny the Elder, I'm hoping one day I'll be known as Chad the Elder, maybe in my later years. Don't call me that now, Ryan. <laughs> Pliny the Elder, he wrote in his book, Natural History, he said that nothing is more useful than salt and sunshine. Nothing's more useful than salt and light. And I think Jesus would say that he's onto something with that declaration. You know, as we examine these two things, I want to start where we should always start. 
I want to start by looking at what salt and what light are portrayed as in God's word. And then I want to look at what salt and light have meant historically and continue to mean. And I think as we do a quick survey of God's word and think about what salt and what light is used for, we'll very quickly and very easily see what Jesus is telling us that we are to be here. And so let's start with salt. The first and primary use of salt, as I already stated, was for preservation. Salt was used as a preservative, and mostly it was used as a preservative for food. Salt would be rubbed onto meat to keep it from decaying. Salt was also a, and still is used to season food. Ask my wife. She loves it. She has a very different palate than I do. Also in small doses, it's been used as a fertilizer in history. Salt has also been used as a purifying agent. And this is a significant symbolism that salt holds in the Old Testament, this idea of it being a purifying agent. The purifying symbolism of salt is very evident in God's Old Testament law. In giving the law for grain offerings, God directed the Israelites to add salt to them. In Leviticus 2.13, God declares, You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all of your offerings, you shall offer salt. He says it three times. That's significant. God likes salt. In Ezekiel, the priests were directed to add salt to the burnt offerings of a bull and a ram. Ezekiel 43, 24, you shall present them before the Lord, and the priest shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Salt was also an ingredient in the essence that was offered in the tabernacle and burnt in the temple. In Exodus 30, 35, it says, make the incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And so the symbolism of salt relating to purity is very clearly seen in the Old Testament. And in addition to this symbolism of purity, salt was also a symbol representing something that was unchanging and was unceasing. And this symbolism is most significantly seen in Numbers chapter 18, where the Lord, he makes a covenant with the Levitical priests. You see, when they divvied up the promised land, the Levitical priests were not given any land. And so the Lord made them a covenant, and he said that I will take care of you. I will provide what you need. And the covenant that he made with the Levites was actually called a salt covenant, referring to the perpetual obligation that a covenant implies. And we see it in Numbers 18, verse 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So as you can see, salt has this rich symbolism in Jewish life. It has this rich symbolism in Jewish tradition. And it was ultimately associated with life because of its preserving and purifying and seasoning effect. And so this is the perspective that Jesus is teaching us from when he says, you are the salt of the earth. And so the conclusion that we should come to is we do what salt does. We preserve. We season. We purify. And we do this all in light of the unchanging, never-ceasing covenant that God has made with those in Jesus Christ. 
See, Darlington concludes in his commentary that Jesus' use of salt imagery is a picture, yes, of what we do, but it is also a reminder of who we are in Christ. That we do all of these things under the new covenant, and that we've been brought into this covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. The imagery of us being called salt connects back to the salt covenant that was made with the priests in the Old Testament. And this correlation is not lost on Darlington. And just think about for a minute, what does Peter call those who are in Christ in his first epistle? He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. And so it's not only what we do, but it's who we are. And so that's salt in scripture and tradition. But how about light? And light's a little bit more straightforward. Light is a universal symbol for good things in religion. Whether it be Christianity or any other, light is a symbol for good things. In Scripture specifically, light is associated with goodness, it is associated with God's power, with God's presence, with God's authority, with holiness, with purity, with truth, with knowledge, and with wisdom. Most significantly, light is a descriptor of Jesus Christ. In John 3, the apostle says, when referring to Jesus, the light has come into the world. In John chapter 8, Jesus declares about himself in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John chapter 9, Jesus says of himself, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so scripture is very clear. Jesus is the light. He is the great light, and he brings the light with him, and subsequently he shares his light with those who come to him in faith, so that what Paul says to be true about the believers in Ephesus is true about all believers. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, and so walk as children of light. This is what was prophesied by the, the, the prophet Isaiah. He said that the Messiah would do this. In Isaiah 9, 2, he said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So this is what we see symbolized by salt and light in Scripture. And so then what do we do with that? Salt and light are fundamentally opposed to the things that they counteract. Salt preserves, it counteracts death and decay. Light illuminates, it counteracts darkness. And so the first thing that we do is we preserve. Followers of Christ are preservers. We preserve the earth from decaying, from death. And so the first thing that we can conclude is that the earth is dying that the earth is decaying. There is a rot in the earth, and we are to counteract this rot. The biblical worldview is that all of creation is under the curse, that all of creation is groaning to be released from the curse that it is under, and due to this curse, all of creation experiences death and decay and corruption. And so we, as followers of Christ, are to have a preserving effect on society that through our influence keeps the world from diving headfirst into destruction. 
This is a role Christianity has fulfilled all through history. If we just did a quick survey of the impact that the Christian faith has had on society, it is incredibly telling towards this role of being preservers. Do you know that the idea of democracy was actually birthed out of ancient Christian monasteries and how they used to be run? Women and children have gained value in societies through Christ's followers' understanding, although imperfectly, the value that Jesus placed upon women and children. Christianity has been the biggest sponsor throughout history of scientific enterprise and the establishment of schools and the establishment of universities and the establishment of hospitals. Christians have led the fight in abolishing slavery. Christians lead the modern day fight in the abolition of trafficking and the abolition of abortion. The preserving effect of Christianity on society is very clearly seen. This is our role. Yale professor Yaroslav Pelikan, he says this, Jesus of Nazareth has been such a dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? In his book, Victory of Reason, sociologist and professor at Washington University, Rodney Starks, he says this, Had the followers of Jesus remained an obscure Jewish sect, most of you would not have learned to read, and the rest of you would be reading from hand-copied scrolls. Without a theology committed to reason, progress, and moral equality today, the entire world would be about where non-European societies were in 1800. It'd be a world of despots, lacking universities, banks, factories, eyeglasses, chimneys, and pianos, a world where most infants do not live past the age of five and many women die in childbirth. The modern world arose only in Christian societies, not in Islam, not in Asia, and not in secular society. Followers of Christ have a preserving effect on this world. Next, we are, to be pure, we are to purify, and we are to bring light. To purify means to make clean, meaning the world is unclean. As with every single one of us, before we came to Christ, we need to be cleansed of our sin. To bring light is to bring truth. And these two things happen through Jesus Christ. An individual is purified when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they come to know the truth. And so to purify the world in our function is to preach Jesus. To be light in the world in our function is to preach Jesus. It is to tell people the truth so that they may know him, come to faith in him, and be purified from sin by him. It is to spread the good news. It is to evangelize. It is to put on display the truth for all people that we now know. And how do we do that? How do we do these things? How do we preserve? How do we purify? How do we bring light? We bring it with some seasoning. That's what salt does. Salt makes things taste good. We all enjoy salt. It makes it enjoyable, tasty, inviting. And so we are to do these things with a sense of charity. We are to do these things with a sense of mercy towards others, in meekness towards each person. Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we are to do these things in gentleness, in meekness, in graciousness. 
towards the world. To that point, I think it's important that we touch on the reality of losing our saltiness. Because Jesus says that we can. So then how do we lose this saltiness? We return to Jesus' warning in Matthew 5.13, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So we have to answer the question, how do we lose our saltiness as followers of Christ? And I wish Mike was here this morning because we were having this conversation last week and we were like, how does salt actually lose its flavor? Is that actually possible? I didn't know the answer to that until I studied this week. I have an answer for Mike now, but he's not here. Maybe I'll watch later. Interestingly enough, this warning from Jesus, it would have been so easily understood by the Jews that he was teaching because of their geographical location. Israel's easternmost edge runs along the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea is actually known as the saltiest water in the world. It's got a 25% salinity. But just because it's the saltiest water in the world doesn't mean that it's the highest quality salt in the world. Because it is so rich with other minerals that the salt in the Dead Sea gets mixed with these other minerals. And one of these minerals that is so high in the Dead Sea is a mineral called gypsum. Now, if you don't know what gypsum is used for, it is used in plaster. And it is used in sidewalk chalk. That gives you an idea what that would taste like. And so the result of this mixing that happens in the Dead Sea is when they mix together, it actually causes the outer layer of the salt to be tasteless. You can't taste it. And so just picture for a moment what it would be like putting salt in your mouth and it tasting like plaster or it tasting like sidewalk chalk, this dry, chalky, like tasteless, gross thing, right? You just want to spit it out and you would likely throw it out. And interestingly, that is exactly what they used to do in Israel with flavorless salt. They would throw it on their rooftops. And they would throw it on their rooftops to help harden the soil that was on their roof and prevent leaks. And guess what roofs were used for in Israel? They were used for gatherings. They were used for children playing. And so salt would literally get thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If you're at all a biblical nerd like me, you're just exploding in your mind right now. I was like, this is amazing. Why do people add to the Bible? There's so much in here. God, God's given us so much to uncover. And so what's significant about this? What is insightful about how we lose our saltiness? Well, salt loses its flavor when it's mixed with other minerals. Or to say it a different way, it loses its effectiveness when it does not remain pure. And so it is with us. You are the salt of the earth, but you will lose your saltiness by not remaining pure, by mixing too much with the world. In fact, to drive this point home, the Greek word that's translated lose its flavor actually literally means to be foolish, to act foolishly. And so Jesus is saying, walk in purity. We see it in the Beatitudes. Walk in purity. 
That is how you keep your saltiness. Do not mix with the things of the world. That is how you lose your flavor. You look and act like everyone else in the world. You don't stand out. You're not salty. You just blend right in. So is it a warning to us to not act foolishly, to understand what we are called to? Now, the last thing I want to touch on is how do we actually function as salt? We looked at what we should do, but how do we do it? And I really think it's important to hone in here on a distinction that, that Martin Lloyd-Jones makes in his commentary. I want to touch on it between the church and the individual Christian. Because I think sometimes we can get confused. We can confuse the, the church's role, and we can confuse our individual role of how we live this out. Because the church collectively, all of us together as they church gathered, is the light of the world. But every single one of you is the light of the world as an individual as well. And so the church and individuals, you function differently. The church corporately functions differently than individuals. It overlaps in purpose, but it looks different in function. And I think that too many Christians confuse their individual role with the church's corporate role. And I think sometimes followers of Christ can actually hide behind the church's role and adapt it as their own, because in some ways it's a lot easier. And it requires having a lot less skin in the game. It requires a lot less sacrifice from us. So let me give you an example. As a pastor who preaches and oversees our services, I at times make pronouncements. You've heard them. <laughs> you can probably think of a few. But I'll sometimes make pronouncements at our gatherings based on truths that I clearly see in Scripture. And some of those pronouncements are going to be in contrast to the world, to the beliefs of the world, to the ways of the world, to what's happening in the world. Because the main function of the church corporately is to teach and equip the saints to walk rightly before God. It is my role to equip you to walk rightly before God. And a part of that role is to call out things that are destructive, that if you follow them down that path will lead to destruction. And so I will make certain pronouncements, whether it be biblical sexuality, biblical ethics that are so in contrast to the world. But what happens is often individuals believe it is their job, it is their role to make similar pronouncements against culture. It is their job to jump on social media and condemn non-Christians for what is evil. And this does not cause people's hearts to change. To defend these kinds of actions, people point to the prophets of the Old Testament. And they say, well, this is the role of Christians. That's what the prophets did. They called the people out. But contextually, that doesn't make sense. Because we have to realize that the prophets worked under the old covenant that God made with the nation of Israel. And in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the religion of Israel, they were one and the same. They were intricately connected. And so it made sense for the prophets to cast judgment and to make pronouncements on the nation as a whole. But the church under the new covenant is completely separate from the nation. We are now very separate under the new covenant. 
And I think if you go through Scripture, I think you're going to be very hard-pressed to find in the New Testament any place where Jesus or Paul or Peter or any other apostle or any other writer of the New Testament makes pronouncements against Rome to Rome. You can't find it. And today, individual Christians are constantly making these kind of public pronouncements against government and against non-Christians. Now, I want to be clear that I am not saying that we don't stand for what we believe. We must stand for what we believe. And I do believe that God will place some Christians in situations where they will have influence and it is their job to speak out. But for the average individual follower of Christ, being salt and being light is not about making pronouncements against the world. That's not how you're going to win people to Christ. That's not how you're going to have a salty flavor. That's not how you're going to be light. It is about how you engage with the world. It is about how you bring your light to an evil situation. It is about how you season decaying things to keep them from dying. And that requires skin in the game. It's so much harder than just sitting at a computer and making pronouncements on social media. And that's what we're called to do. Being salt and light is about how you live your life. It is about the manner in which you carry yourself. It is about the manner in which you gauge others. A Christian should always be readily aware of the people that are around them. A Christian should always be readily aware of their relation to others in every situation of your life and carry yourself in a manner that will influence them and preserve them from corruption. It doesn't happen apart over social media. It doesn't. Just to give you an example, I've shared about how I worked at Ikea for, for 10 years in the warehouse. Loved it. Loved it. Uh, everyone knew I was a Christian at Ikea. And that led to some really good conversations. But one of the realities of working in a warehouse those of you who know who've worked in warehouses, is the language is often interesting, a little bit colorful, and some of the conversations that were had were, were questionable, not very honorable conversations, right? If a customer wasn't around, it could kind of go south very quickly. But what always happened is whenever I walked in a room, guess what? Everybody stopped swearing. The colorful language disappeared. And if someone accidentally slipped, they would actually turned to me and apologized. And I, I never expected them to apologize. It was just a reaction because they knew I was a Christian and they knew I lived differently. Anytime they were having conversations about women that were questionable and I walked in the room, it would stop immediately and they would apologize for what they were saying. And this is the kind of preserving effect that followers of Christ have on situations. When they know that you are salt, when they know that you are light, it causes people to be pulled up out of their sin. And I'm sure all of you have similar instances of this happening in your life. It's wrapped up in how you live, not so much the pronouncements you make against society. Our ultimate purpose in all of this, in being salt and being light, is the glory of God. As with everything, it is to glorify God, 
to steal John Piper's famous line that he lives his life by, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's our role, to be so satisfied in God and glorify him. And satisfaction in God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so being salt and being light is living this gospel and preaching this gospel and bringing others to this gospel so that they may glorify our Father in heaven. And that happens when there's skin in the game. That happens when we're willing to sacrifice, when we're willing to step out and not just preach from a distance and make proclamations. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to be salt and to be light in this world. It is a complex role, and there is so much more that could be said about what it means. But Lord, help us to understand how each of us as individuals are to walk this out. We have neighbors that don't know you. We have family members that don't know you. We have people that we come across every single day that don't know you. So Lord, help us to get skin in the game. Help us to understand that to be solid and to be light often requires sacrifice. It often requires stepping out of our comfort zone. Lord, help us to do that, knowing that you go with us in all things, that it's through your power that we live. Lord, we thank you that you have even called us to this work, that you have actually given us this great pleasure of being able to live and work for you. Father, we know that your word says that when we do these things, you, you, will, you will empower us. You'll give us what to say in the right situation. And so, Lord, let us examine our lives. Let us examine whether we have lost our saltiness, whether we have hidden our light, and how we have maybe done those things. And, Lord, may we repent and may we turn back. Father, thank you that it is you who sustains us. It is you who keeps us. It is not by our work alone. And Father, thank you for the great light who came into this world for the sake of sinners so that we may have life and have it abundantly. We give you praise through Jesus' name. Amen.